We are grateful that you're here. We're, like Andy said, finishing up our Exodus series. Well, more like we're taking a pause. We're going to come back after our next series for two weeks uh, to, to, to finish up. And that's a combination of, of me changing the series just a little bit with Exodus, uh, extending it by one week, but also the snow, because we had to, to cancel a week. So uh, sometimes these things just happen. So thanks for uh, looking forward to uh, early June, end of May for the, the end of Exodus. Uh, But we have a chapter today that we're going to go through, Exodus chapter 32. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of the golden calf. It is a very interesting story. Uh, Would you open it to us, help us understand it, uh, but then help us apply it to our lives uh, over 3,000 years later. Uh, Help us uh, uh, to to, to put what we learn into action. Uh, It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I wanted to start by telling you a little bit about uh, a man named Jack. Now, Jack works for a telecommunications company. Now, he tells his friends that he loves his job, he loves his company, and he loves his boss. So as you talk to Jack, you, you hear kind of his, what he says uh, is his, his heart for his company. But if you were to go and and follow Jack for a week at his job, you would be a bit confused because he shows up, on average, 15 minutes late to work. And then he leaves, you know, five, ten minutes early before going home. And he doesn't seem to have any problem with pocketing like a few highlighters, a few pens, you know, some office supplies, take home a ream of paper. And as he goes through his week, he spends most of his time in his office. He occasionally goes out to talk to coworkers, but only if he has to. He doesn't really seem to like being around those other people. And sometimes, you know, he'll send a, an email here or there, a nasty email about his, his boss or a coworker. And then, you know, if you were to, to talk to him, he, well, he wouldn't, he wouldn't point at these things as, you know, demonstrations of his job. He would just say, yeah, I love my job. I wouldn't trade it for the world. <laughs> but you've been following him during the week, and you know, well, this seems to be a bit odd. This seems to be a bit off. The story of Jack is a parable. The story of Jack is an analogy. I want to tell you the story uh, again of Jack. See, Jack is a Christian, and he says he loves God, he loves Jesus, he loves the church, But as he goes through his week, you would say, well, this seems to be a bit off. He doesn't spend much time praying to the God he loves. He doesn't really read the Bible that much. In fact, if you were to visit his house, you would see the Bible placed on a nice bookshelf and a a nice thin layer of dust covering it. Someone has written, read me, on the cover. (laughs) I've actually seen that in reality. And if you were to to, to kind of go along with him throughout his week, you wouldn't see someone who really talks about Jesus or really thinks about him much during his work week. And when it comes to the weekends, well, he doesn't have a super high commitment to the Lord either. He doesn't go to church that often, but he, he does have a church, and he calls it his church. But, you know, if something else pops up, he will skip out two, three, four times a month. So you got to ask, well, 
Jack, do you, do you really love God? Like, is, is Jesus an important part of your life? Because the actions don't seem to match up with the words. See, Jack has a problem. He says one story, I love God, I love Jesus, but then his actions say, well, if something else comes up, I'm going to prioritize those other things above God. See, the, bro- the problem that Jack has can be summarized in one single word, idolatry. <laughs> idolatry. Idolatry is any time we put anything above God, whether ourselves, our, 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 our experiences. It's, it's any time we put God second in our lives. And I do think that idolatry is a problem. And we're going to see that in the scriptures. But most of you probably don't think of idolatry as a, as a problem that, that we would wrestle with in our lives, would you? Because we don't typically, on a normal day, you know, burn incense to a, an idol, a figurine. We don't uh, say prayers, perhaps, to our ancestors. But the Bible, at its core, in the core of Exodus chapter 32, doesn't define idolatry as limited to bowing down to a golden calf. It really defines idolatry as any time we don't put God first in our lives, any time we put God second. Now, some of you were here a few weeks ago, and I gave a, a sermon on the Ten Commandments, and I taught everyone how to remember the Ten Commandments. The first commandment is you shall have no other gods uh, before me. And the way I taught people to remember it is number one, you know, put God first. There's one God, we're going to put him first in our lives. So you can always remember that is the first commandment. The second commandment is no idols, right? And it's a number two. It's a little, a two. And a two looks kind of like a, a small idol or a bowing down person. So God says, you know, don't have any other gods but me, and don't, don't make an image, don't make a graven image, don't make an idol, then bow down and worship that idol. See, God gives the Israelites these Ten Commandments and the laws, but it's amazing. He did that in Exodus chapter 20. <laughs> and by Exodus chapter 32, they have already broken the very first two commandments that God has given them. So love God, to not make any idols. Now, I want to address this problem of idolatry. I want to address it with the Israelites, and I want to address it in our hearts and our lives, and I want to do it with three questions. Why do we commit idolatry? What are the consequences of idolatry? And how can we have hope? How can we overcome this in our lives today? So first, let's look at that first question. Why do we commit idolatry? Now, if you think about the Israelites, why would they bow down to this, 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 this golden calf? I mean, think of everything that God has just done for them. There are two million people. God has delivered them from 400 years of, of, of being in a foreign land, many of which were years of slavery, of harsh kind of servitude under a foreign reign, a foreign king, Pharaoh. He's brought them out of those circumstances. He took them to the Red Sea where they, they looked like they were going to perish. And what does God do? He, he, he literally opens up the kind of a, a, an ocean behind their backs, and they are able to, to walk through the Red Sea, and then God uh, destroys Pharaoh's army. And then when they're in the desert, well, they're, they're threatened with dehydration and starvation. And what does God do again? He saves them. He gives them food from heaven. He gives them manna. Spiritual fast food. It's amazing. 
And yet somehow, already, just a few chapters later, they're turning away from God. And if, if, if God's goodness isn't enough, God takes them to Mount Sinai and he makes a covenant. A covenant is a promise where God is involved. God is forming a special relationship with the Israelite people. A relationship based on promises, but a relationship that includes expectations. See, God gives the Ten Commandments as a way uh, for the Israelites to follow him, to know him, but then also to obey him. Just like that video said, to hear him, but then to do. And the Israelites in Exodus chapter 24, they say, all right, we agree. It's, it's amazing that through, through the, the story of the Bible, we see God, it's not, it almost sounds like a business relationship, like a contract, but it's really not. It's, a, it's more of a marriage. God uh, gives kind of the allegory of, of marriage between himself and the people of Israel all the way through the scriptures. And actually, we see that in Exodus chapter 24 that we're not reading right now. But anytime uh, the Israelites agree to God's law, it's like they're taking their wedding vows. They say, all right, we agree. We're going we're gonna to commit to this relationship with God. Here are our vows. And then, right after that, in Exodus chapter 24, there's a wedding feast. There's like a party. There's a wedding reception, almost, where Moses and Aaron and the, the, the elders, the 70 elders, they, they go and they have a meal with God. They kind of ratify their, their wedding vows as a nation with God. They are God's special covenant relationship people. It's like God and Israel are married. And then at the end of this feast, we started it right in Exodus chapter 32. What does Moses do? He goes up on the mountain, and he's up there for 40 days. It's like he, he, has, he has just left the wedding. And what happens right after that? The people cheat on their God. It's like the honeymoon. It's like they get married, husband and wife, and then within... 40 days, they are already cheating on their spouse. It's terrible. But it's actually what we do if we call ourselves Christians, but we don't put God first in our lives. That's kind of a, a, a harsh way of saying it, but I just want to get to the, the core of what it is. What is idolatry? Well, it's putting God second. And why do we commit idolatry? It's because of spiritual adultery, spiritual adultery. It's any time we cheat on our relationship with God. See, the Israelites come to Moses, so they, 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 they don't come to Moses, they come to Aaron. And Aaron's supposed to be the chief priest, kind of the one who's leading their spiritual lives. And they say, well, Moses doesn't seem to be coming back. He seems to have disappeared up on that mountain. And so we want a God that we can see and we can worship. <laughs> and what does Aaron say? He says, okay. He says, take off your, your golden rings. You know, take off the gold that, that you have. It's on your ears. But take off your gold, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, melt it down, and I'm going to make this idol that you can worship. 
There's something really significant about this. Do you remember earlier in the book of Exodus when God was leading the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, plunder the Egyptians, take their gold, go door to door and ask them, hey, we want your gold and they'll give it to you. See, God gave them that gold as a kind of engagement gift, as a relationship gift. And they are taking off the gold, they are taking off their wedding bands, and they are putting it into the fire, and they are using that gold to commit spiritual idolatry. See, this is like pawning your wedding gifts to pay for an affair, a spiritual affair on God. And the scriptures actually highlight this in a very interesting way. In verse 6, it says, The people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. That word for play implies sexual misconduct. They were drinking, they were getting drunk, and they were sleeping around. They were consummating their relationship with a foreign God. They were committing spiritual idolatry. Now, do we as Christians ever give in to this? We don't, we don't worship golden cows. We never worship like brands or anything, right? <laughs> but I wanted us to kind of come together and take a little self-assessment quiz because everyone loves to do a test. <laughs> and this, this quiz is just some questions of helping us determine in our lives if perhaps we're committing idolatry. They're all true and false because that's the easiest form of test. True or false? I always trust God no matter what's going on in my life. You can just answer quietly in your heart. You can write it on the piece of paper if you want. You'll probably want to throw it away later. The Israelites stop trusting God because they can't see God. But we never make that mistake, right? True or false? I never try and make God do the things I want. So the Israelites want a God that they can control. They want a calf that they can literally pick up and, and move around, kind of be the ideal God. We would never do that, right? True or false? I worship the God revealed in the Bible, not the God I imagine him to be. The Israelites come together and they, they create their, their, their wish list God. <laughs> they create their dream God. They can make any God they want. They make this golden calf. Now, we never make the God of the Bible the God that we're comfortable with, do we? True or false? I always put God first even when it's inconvenient. See, the God, brought, the God of Israel brought his people into the wilderness, and then he seemed to abandon them. It was incredibly inconvenient. So what do they do? They get a new leader, Aaron, who will do whatever they say, and they get a new God. That's much more convenient. And we never do that, right, where we kind of worship God if it's convenient to us in our lives. Now, to pass this quest, uh, this, this, this quiz, you have to get all four answers as true. If there's anyone that passed the, the quiz, please come talk to me after the service. I'd love to hear how you did it. Because I get a false on every single one of these. I fail. See, I, in my heart, in my life, I commit idolatry. Now, there are some days when 
I don't do some of these things where I am honoring God and putting him first. But most days, I don't. And this is the same issue that the Israelites are wrestling with. And for them, the results are disastrous. When they commit idolatry, it is terrible what happens next. So this leads me to our second question. What are the consequences of idolatry, both for the Israelites and for us in our own lives today? Now, do you remember how Jesus in the New Testament, he summarizes the whole law? He summarizes it as love God and love your neighbor, right? So if the Israelites are breaking the law and they're committing idolatry, we're going to see the opposite happen. We're going to see a sort of hatred or a dislike for God. We're going to see something harm the relationship between God and people. Then we're also going to see the relationship between people and people be harmed as well. So not love for neighbor, but the opposite of that. And so what we see first is spiritual ruin. That is the consequence of idolatry. It leads them to spiritual ruin. And we see this theme kind of appear throughout the story. See, when Israel first makes this, this golden calf and they begin to worship it, we, we jump from the foot of the mountain to the top of the mountain. We see uh, God and Moses talking to each other, and God is furious. <laughs> my, my, my wife, my bride, is cheating on me spiritually. She has uh, turned away from me. She no longer is honoring me or worshiping me. See, they... The, the relationship with God is broken. Simply put, spiritual ruin is separation from God's love. It's separations from, separation from like God's, God's blessing, his, his adoration. It's a break in relationship. That's the first thing they experience, separation from God's love. Second, when Moses comes down the mountain, he takes two tablets, the, the tablets that have the law written on them on the front and the back. When he sees what the people are doing, he takes the tablets and he throws them on the ground and they break. Those tablets symbolize, well, they, they literally are the covenant that God has made with his people. It's like taking uh, uh, kind of your, your marriage certificate and just ripping it up. But it's not God who ripped it up, it's the people. Because the people are the ones that have broken the covenant. Moses is illustrating that they have broken the relationship, not Moses, not God. And then third, Moses takes the golden calf, he grinds it up, he pours it into water, and he says, you need to drink this. Moses is illustrating in a somewhat gross way what the, the results of their relationship, what, what, what the, 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 the spiritual end game of following a golden calf and turning away from God will be. So Moses wants this golden calf, their idol, to pass through their digestive system and for them to see the results of what it means to not trust God. That's a bit gross but it's true. See, spiritual ruin, uh, idolatry leads to spiritual ruin, which is destruction, which is there's nothing good in it. 
The Bible warns us, too, that if we live lives of idolatry and not putting God first, one day we will receive spiritual ruin as well. It's called the judgment, the final judgment. Colossians 3, 5, and 6 calls us to put away our idols. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Those are all ways of saying putting yourself first in every aspect of your life, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Spiritual ruin is coming. That's not a fun message. That's not a, that's not a heartwarming message, but it, it's good to have warnings, right? If someone's going to put their hands in a, in a socket, you want to say, no, don't do that. You'll, you'll get electrocuted. God is warning us today. He's saying, come, put me first, because if you don't, something's coming. I'm coming. God's wrath is coming. Idolatry leads to spiritual ruin, but also relational ruin. We experience uh, the, the negative results, the kind of the negative impacts of idolatry in this life. We see this when Moses calls out. He gets to the foot of the mountain and he calls out. And he says, come to me, all who are on the Lord's side. And the Levites come to him. The Levites are the priestly tribe. They come to him and and. and, and and Moses says something that's terrible. He says, take your sword and go out and kill a brother, kill a neighbor, and kill a friend. Kill the people that are, are worshiping this false god. And it's not because Moses is a vindictive kind of guy, but it's because he's illustrating, he's demonstrating the results that idolatry will have on a community. It will absolutely destroy a community. And we see this through the, through the nation of Israel, through their years, through their history. They're a nation that continues to turn away from God, and it destroys them as a nation. They go into captivity. We experience the effects of idolatry in our own lives and in our own communities. The, the American dream is an idolatrous dream. The American dream is to get as much wealth, much power, and much success as you can, and through that, you will achieve happiness. And what has that dream wrought? How has it impacted us? The poor become poor, and the rich become richer, and they don't seem much happier because of it. It breaks down a society. Greed. How about just individually putting ourselves first? You know, that, that's kind of the, the, the mantra, the, the teaching that we received all the time, right? Put yourself first, self first. But if, if you're told to put yourself first and I'm told to put myself first, I see that not too long from now we're probably going to run into conflict. <laughs> we're starting a new series next week called Conflict and Peacemaking, and I'm doing some, some reading. I'm listening to a, a, a book on this topic, and the author says that at its heart, Conflict comes from idolatry. We get into, we, we create broken relationships because we begin to say, I'm the one who matters most. I don't care about God's will. I don't care what God might be doing in this situation. I'm going to get my way. And that's where conflict starts. 
It starts with idolatry. I hope you'll come back next week. I hope this sermon won't scare you away from that sermon series if you're new. When we, when we, when we don't put God first, it makes it hard to love others, actually. It makes it difficult to love others in the way they need to be loved. Because no matter how good and kind and a loving someone is, if we're loving them above God, we're elevating them to a status that they simply can't maintain. Because they're not perfect. <laughs> Eventually they will blow it. Eventually they will hurt you in some way. And that'll just hurt the relationship. When we idolize someone, they're sure to fall. Idolatry leads to spiritual ruin and relational ruin. I'm sure some of you are feeling a little down, (laughs) a little depressed. I certainly was as I was writing this. But I wanted us to feel, I wanted us to feel the mistake that the Israelites are making. Feel it in our hearts. Idolatry leads to destruction. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. But in the midst of this trouble, in the midst of this hurt, in the midst of these consequences, guess what? There's hope. There's goodness. The Bible doesn't just condemn sin. It says, ah, here's the solution. Here's the goodness. Here's the way forward. And this leads me to my third question. How can we overcome and have hope? What's the good news? Now, Exodus chapter 32 comes a couple chapters after we learned about the priesthood, right? We learned about the tabernacle, and then last week I preached on the priesthood. We, and, and, and over the course of this series, we've learned that a priest uh, acts as someone who is an intercessor, but also as a, a mediator. I want to define a mediator again for you. A mediator is someone who brings two enemies together and makes it possible for them to be friends again. Now, last night we watched a documentary here in this room at Cornerstone called As We Forgive, and it was about the Rwandan genocide. It was a hard documentary to watch, but uh, it was really good. And if you would like to see it, I'd love to lend you a copy. Uh, but in that documentary, there are the, the, the Hutus and the Tutsis, and they have been in conflict. There has been genocide. And mediators go out into the communities and seek to bring the perpetrators, those that committed the violent crimes, together with the victims, uh, the, 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 the victims, uh, uh, the, the family members of the, the ones that have been killed, and bring them together so that they can become friends again. And we actually saw that in the movie. The people, uh, one man who had, had murdered uh, another woman's children, actually was able to become a friend of her and help her and serve her through the course of this documentary. It was amazing. So we need a mediator, but we also need a mediator who, who intercedes. To intercede is to speak on someone else's behalf. See, the Israelites need a mediator to come in and to fix the relationship between God and the Israelites And they need someone who can come in and kind of speak on their behalf even though they don't deserve it, even though they've blown it. And this is who Moses becomes. In in Exodus chapter 32, Moses pleads to God on their behalf, God have mercy. And as we look at what Moses does, we see the solution to idolatry in our own lives. 
See, this first solution is to remember God's faithfulness. Remember who God is. What does Moses do? He, he, in verses 11 through 14, he just goes through and he recounts God's promises. He says, God, you brought the Israelites out of Egypt. Uh, you, you sent these supernatural plagues on, on, on the nation of Egypt to deliver them. And now if they just die when they're in the wilderness, what are those Egyptians going to say? They're going to say, well, their God's not so good. He just brought them out into the desert to kill them, to wipe them off the face of the math, map. Their God is a vindictive God. So Moses is reminding God of his own goodness. He is, he's kind of proclaiming God's goodness. He's calling God's goodness to mind. And he also remembers a promise. Back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God said uh, to a man named Abraham that I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless the whole earth through you. And that's the story of the Bible, the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. And the Israelite nation is the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if God's going to be true to his promise, he can't just wipe them off the face of the map, can he? And so Moses is remembering God's faithfulness, and he's kind of proclaiming it back to God. He's praying in line with God's promises. Now, when we in our lives are tempted to put ourselves first, to elevate our, our, our desires, our wants, uh, maybe experiences or people above who God is, the call out to us is just to remember God's goodness, to pause and to remember uh, what God has done for us. And sometimes this is difficult because uh, we can't see what God is doing. And, and Chris uh, Coglin, he shared a great kind of reminder at the preaching breakfast this week. He said, when you can't see God's hand, trust his heart. When you can't see God's hand, trust his heart. And as Christians, the best way to remember God's goodness, to remember God's faithfulness, is just to start thinking about Easter. <laughs> to start thinking about what Christ has done for us on the cross, how he died and rose again so that we can live, to pay the penalty for our sins if we trust in him. What a beautiful way to stop thinking about ourselves, to think about Jesus. Remember God's faithfulness. The second one is worship God for who he is. See, the solution to idolatry is worship. Worship of the one true God as he has revealed himself in scriptures. Now in Exodus 32 verse 5, Moses makes this golden calf and he goes to the altar and he sacrifices and he says, here is your God. And the word for God is actually Yahweh. Here is Yahweh. In other words, Aaron, excuse me, Aaron is saying, this golden calf, it's the God all along that you've been worshiping and that you've been in a relationship with. And that's wrong. That's incorrect. That is not God. See, Moses is making, uh, Aaron is making Yahweh into a God that they can control, a God that, that won't harm them, a God that's easy to worship, a God that they can agree with. We as Christians are called to worship God as he reveals himself in the Scripture, in the Bible. That's why one of our core values, one of those things that we want to be part of our DNA as a church, uh, is just teaching the Bible and understanding the Bible because, not just because we think this is a really great book, but because we think it reveals a really great God. That it tells us who God is. And you know what? There are some really hard truths in these, in these pages. 
There are some things that are not fun to believe. But God doesn't say, you know, the solution to that is to cut out some of the pages, to mold me and to change me, or to ignore those hard teachings. He says, come and wrestle with those hard teachings. Why do I say these things in my word? God is fine with a good wrestling match. He just doesn't want us to to change him into something else. This week I got to go to uh, Bradford Christian Academy. That's the, the place where Monica teaches to their gala. And Monica actually gave one of their, their featured uh, talks. She was a featured speaker at their high school. And her main point was that they want Bradford Christian Academy to be a place where students can wrestle with the hard truths of Scripture, to wrestle with who God is in an honest and open way in a safe environment. And I want us to be that same kind of place. I want Cornerstone to be a place where we don't shy away from hard teachings. We know that the Bible says some really difficult things. And we want to wrestle with those openly and honestly. Worship God for who he is. The next one is ownership of sin. What's the solution? Ownership of sin. Remember not just who God is, but remember who we are. It's interesting, when Moses confronts Aaron, Moses, Aaron blames everyone, but he doesn't, take, he doesn't blame himself. He doesn't take ownership. He says, well, the, the people are sinners. At first, he kind of blames Moses. He says, well, this isn't such a big deal, Moses. And then he blames the people and says, those people are evil. And then he blames the calf. He says, well, some gold, you know, I threw it into the fire and out popped this calf. <laughs> if we're going to overcome the idols in our lives, we have to admit that they're idols. We have to say, this is a sin. And the gospel helps us do that. The good news of what Christ has done for us says, yeah, our sins are gross. <laughs> our sins are dirty, but our, our God is greater. Our God is more kind. Our God loves us through those things. When I was a teenager, I, I rebelled against my parents, against my family, and I, I did things that I was ashamed of. I, I drank alcohol and got drunk, and I looked at pornography. And it's amazing how when we begin to put God second in our lives, we don't look that much different from the Israelites, from what they did with that golden calf. But it's amazing that as we take ownership for our sins, and there is a series of events where I I had the opportunity to do that, and we repent, God restores us, but not just to what we were before, but to a newer and a better place, to a more refreshing place. Out of that, that period of kind of rebellion and, then, and repentance and forgiveness, I, just, I, I got this like refreshed walk with the Lord. And the Bible says this. This can be your experience too. Acts chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 says, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of of the Lord. When we hold on to our idols, when we put God second in our lives, it's like we're we're like we're we're holding on to something. We're just clinging to it. We're wrapping our bodies around it. And finally when we let those things go, it's like ah, oh, I can finally breathe. I can finally grow. I can I can I can burst forth like one of these plants. To overcome our idols, we remember God's faithfulness, we worship God for who he is, and we take ownership of our sin, but we need one thing more. We need a substitute. We need a substitute Savior. See, at the end of our story, Moses does something beautiful. He offers to, 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 to 
to rescue the people. Exodus 32, verse 30 says this. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Atonement is defined as providing a way of coming back into friendship with someone. See, Moses is the mediator. He's the, he's the intercessor. Uh, and he's also trying to make atonement. And how does he do this? He goes up and he talks to God. Exodus 32, 32 says, But now please forgive their sins, but if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. In other words, God, forgive these people, forgive these Israelites at the cost of my eternal soul. Take me out of that that book of life, that, that book where all the names of your subjects are written. Blot my name out so that they, their names can stay. Moses is a good mediator. He is trying to love his people. He is a good intercessor, but he's not good enough because Moses is also a sinner, and you can't pay for someone else's sins if you're a sinner. See, we need a better mediator. We need a better intercessor. We need someone to come along who can really make atonement for our sins, for this broken relationship, and that's who we get in Jesus. That's what Jesus does. See, when Jesus comes down into this world, he comes down as the perfect representative between God in heaven and us on earth. He's, he's fully God, but he's also fully man, and he comes down into our lives, and he walks among us so he knows what it's like to be human. But unlike us, he doesn't make the sins. He doesn't make the mistakes. He, he doesn't deserve to be blotted out of God's book. And yet at the cross, what do we see Jesus doing? We see Jesus going to the cross, and his name is blotted out. His relationship is broken with the Father. Jesus takes on our spiritual ruin and our relational ruin at the cross. When Jesus is hanging there on the cross and he's dying on Easter weekend, he he, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is powerful because Jesus almost always refers to God as his Father. See, the Father, the one he's known and loved for all eternity, eternity past, a million, trillion, billion years, and keep going, the Father has has forsaken the Son. The Father has turned away. The Father has abandoned Jesus so that you and I don't have to be abandoned, so that we don't have to experience relational or spiritual ruin. See, it's like... It's like the wrath of God. The the wrath of God did fall on Jesus. The sword fell on Jesus. The plague fell on Jesus. Jesus, in that moment, he consumes our idols so so that we don't become consumed by them. His name is blotted out. This is the message of Christianity, and it calls for a response. It calls for a belief. The, the, the wonderful news is that we can come to the cross and we can lay down our idols. We can come to, to God and say, here are the ways that I don't put you first. Thank you that Christ has paid for them. I want to close by telling you the story of Jack one more time. See, Jack realizes he's been living a lie. He says he loves God, but he doesn't live that way. And so he goes home, and he goes to a room. No one's around. He closes the door, and he gets on his knees. And he just confesses, God, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't been loving you as I'm called to love you. 
And I see that expressed and that demonstrated in aspects of my life that I don't spend much time talking to you through prayer. I don't, I don't spend much time listening to you by reading your Bible, by reading the words that you've given us. I haven't done a very good job of loving your, your bride, the church. I haven't done a very good job at all. And I haven't been very you know, loving to my neighbor either. I have failed over and over again. But he doesn't just get up. Jack doesn't get up and say, okay, I'm good. I'm, I'm going to go down. I'm going to try harder. Jack confesses his own sins. He takes ownership for his own sins. But then Jack remembers what Christ has done. He remembers his substitute. He remembers that for every failure that Jack has, there's a victory in Christ. See, Jack confesses the complete success of Jesus on the cross, that Jesus always put his father first, his relationship with him, that Christ knew and loved the scriptures, that Christ read, that Christ prayed all the time, that Christ loved his bride, the church, and he laid down his life for her. He loved the church perfectly. See, Jack is remembering God's faithfulness, and he is worshiping God for who he has revealed himself to be through Christ Jesus. And Jack is just thanking God for his substitute for Christ. See, Jack is laying down his idols at the foot of the cross. And as he's done that and remembered what happened on the cross, he says, all right, now, Holy Spirit, would you help me to put God first? Thank you that Jesus has paid for every single way I don't do that for every single way I fail, but that Jesus has also kind of empowered me through the Holy Spirit to come and to live in obedience day by day, not perfectly, but I can begin to honor God. I can begin to put him first in my life. I can begin to be second in Jesus, number one. And when Jack leaves that room, he leaves refreshed because that's what the scriptures say. The scriptures say refreshment comes. Lay down your idols at the foot of the cross. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage. What an interesting passage. Would we live it out in our own lives? I pray for the offering that we're going to give. This is a way that we show that you're first in our lives. Would we do it in a way that truly honors you? Would we do it with happy hearts? Would we do so sacrificially? And would you take these offerings, these sacrifices that we give you, and would you multiply them? Would you multiply your kingdom? Would you, would you use it to bless Cornerstone and bless Westford, to bless the whole world with the name of Jesus? It's in his name we pray. Amen.